0: My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. In this episode, we look at family reunification policy in Brazil. Amanda Alensar speaks to Patricia Nabucco-Marticelli about her research on family reunification policy in Brazil and about the efforts of different groups of refugees to claim their right to live with family members.
1: My research is on uh, family unification policies for refugees in Brazil and in Latin America in general. Uh, So I think uh, this topic has been receiving more attention in migration studies. So family migration is an important area of studies, especially in Europe. Uh, So we have been discussing how different constructions of families and how different countries uh, adopt procedures to decide what is a real family, what is a real couple, what is love. But for uh, migrants in general, we don't have a lot of research about refugees. And we don't have many research about family unification outside the global north. So my research innovates uh, trying to understand, okay, what is like uh, this policy in Brazil? a country in the global south, a country that has received more asylum seekers in 2018 and in 2019, and has uh, a progressive asylum law, a progressive migration law since 2017. So how this country understands family, how this country not only designs the policy, the legislation, but also implements that, and how different actors perceive that, including refugees. So I think my contribution to the area of migration is that is is actually studying those policies from different places that can contribute to understand the best practices and the challenges comparatively with other contexts like Europe
0: and to understand not only the legislation, the policy, the design, but also the implementation. In your work, Patrícia, you have combined perspectives of different migration actors at the governance level, but also the perspectives and experiences of refugees regarding family reunification policies in the Brazilian context. Can you tell us what are the main constraints in family reunification migration policies for the refugees living in Brazil, specifically? Well, the interesting thing is that Brazil has a very
1: uh, progressive family unification policy. So we have a broad definition of family, including ascendants, descendants, partners, and other family members that are economically dependent on the refugees. We also have a more... It's rate 4 procedure, then Europe, so no need to have DNA tests, for example, no need to have a minimum income or a minimum waiting time or a maximum deadline that you can bring family members. So in theory, if you read the policy, the legislation is really easy, the family identification procedure, but in practice, refugees face a lot of challenges. So the first challenge is that we don't define what is economic dependence. So it really depends on the bureaucrat that is implementing the policy to decide how to prove that. A second difficulty is that we have no clear deadlines. So the procedures can take one month, can take one year, two years. And another problem is that we don't have a review. So in cases, family unification visas or the procedure in Brazil is denied, there is no clear revision mechanisms or no clear juridical revisions that refugees can apply. And especially since 2017, diplomats granting those visas, they have a lot of discretionary power to decide to grant these visas or not. And the Brazilian Family Unification Policy implementation, considering family unification, granted more power to diplomats. And diplomats are not trained in asylum topics, in human rights topics. They are trained to do family control. So we see that Uh, Since 2017, especially for Congolese refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo, their visas are being denied for their families, and they don't receive information of why the visas got denied or how they could, I don't know, implement new documents or new evidence to have those visas. So in this case, we have a permanent separation of family members, and the refugees don't have information, and they don't know how they can ask for revisions, and this is really serious.
0: It is particularly interesting what you said before, Patricia, about uh, on the one hand, uh, refugee policies in Brazil are considered progressive policies, but on the other hand, when it comes to Uh, the application, the implementation of these policies in particular uh, regarding family reunification, it can indeed be a problem. It can create a lot of challenges for for refugees living in Brazilian cities. And as you mentioned, uh, in the case specifically of Congolese refugees and the challenge they have been facing, the lack of transparency, I would like to ask you, based on your research, in which ways are these refugees exercising them, their agency, to counter, for instance, arbitrary, if I can call it this way, family reunification rules and practice, and fight for their right to rebuild a life with their families in Brazil. Perhaps you can share with us the insights you gained from your research with Congolese refugees in the city of São Paulo. The Congolese
1: experience is really interesting, so um, although... um... Congolese are not the largest group or the largest nationality of refugees we have in Brazil. So today we have first people from Venezuela, second people from Syria, and then the Congolese as the third largest nationality. Uh, The Congolese that want to bring their families to Brazil, they only have the option of family unification visas. And Venezuelans they don't need visas to arrive in Brazil. And Syrians, they can apply uh, for a humanitarian visa as well. So the only way for those families to be together is through family unification visas. And Congolese are the largest group that applies for family unification visas in Brazil. So more than 50% of the family unification visas between 2013 and 2018 were for Congolese nationals and their families, and they were having their visas denied in the Brazilian embassy in Kinshasa. So um, Congolese in the city of Sao Paulo, they were mobilizing, they were connecting. So they had a WhatsApp group So for people that uh, were having problems with their family reunification visas to connect and to discuss strategies on how to mobilize using the same channels that were available to Brazilians. So they wrote like a manifesto and two representatives of this group, of this collective that was called Coletivo, they went to Brasilia to the capital and to share this document uh, with the Minister of Foreign Affairs, with the, the coordinator of the National Committee for Refugees, CONARI, with UNHCR and with other organizations working in the area of refugees and asylum in Brazil, in the federal level and in the the level of the city of Sao Paulo and uh, the state of Sao Paulo should make their cause more visible. So during my research, unfortunately, they, they had, um, at that time, they, they they got no success in presenting main claims, but they were protesting and they were protesting differently from other refugee movements. They were not doing hunger strikes or sit-ins, or but they were using the channels, the legal channels available to Brazilians. And that's really, really interesting as a as a mechanism to connect online through WhatsApp, but also doing something offline through the, the channels available to any Brazilia.
0: Uh, how do you differentiate then the Congolese experience of mobilization in Sao Paulo from other refugee? communities in Brazil or perhaps even from other refugees in Europe. You mentioned that uh, WhatsApp played a prominent role in this process in particular for communication, for uh, the sharing of relevant resources, but also for um, trying to reach the community, the large community of Congolese uh, in, in the city of Sao Paulo and beyond. So perhaps if you could say a little bit more about what are uh, what actually differentiates the Congolese experience of mobilization in Sao Paulo uh, from other refugees in Europe and also from other refugee communities in Brazil.
1: Yes, there is a very interesting literature on the mobilization, political mobilization of refugees, asylum seekers, migrants in general, especially in Europe, but also some studies in Brazil. And what I think this movement is a little bit different from these other experiences is that uh, these other experiences, they focus in mobilizations that are more... um, that involves some type of uh, physical presence. So hunger strikes of refugees or sit-ins or protests in front of UNHCR. And we also said uh, saw that in Brazil when Palestinian refugees, they were resettled in Brazil, they were unhappy with their resettlement conditions and they went to Brasilia and they physically protested in front of the Minister of Foreign Affairs and UNHCR. And that was not what the Congolese they were doing. So, their political mobilization uh, could be more invisible because they they were not physically protesting or doing hunger strikes or doing uh, those things that that are more visible to the to the public. They were using bureaucratic channels. They were writing manifestos. They were uh, delivering those manifestos to authorities that could help them. They were uh, using channels that any Brazilian could use and. Those types of mobilizations, they, tend, they can be um, not considered political mobilization because they are more invisible. So that's uh, something interesting about the case of the Congolese and this dual way of mobilizing online, but also offline.
0: Do you also attribute uh, the, the fact that the Congolese uh, refugees, for example, this differentiation in a way that they mobilized, in particular, in the case of family reunification uh, policies, uh, do you attribute that differentiation to the fact that these communities have been living longer in Brazil? I don't think so. What I think is that uh, they
1: know they are fighting a very powerful agent. So the Minister of Foreign Affairs is a very isolated bureaucracy in Brazil. Diplomats, they have a lot of power. They can decide about granting or not the visa so they knew they were in a more unequal power relationship with this bureaucracy. but at the same time they knew their rights their language so they knew they had a legal right to family unification according to the brazilian migration law So so they and they try to use these more bureaucratic channels also to, I think in my opinion, to increase their chances of success. So saying, hey, we are not causing a trouble to the Brazilian government. We just want our rights. And so we are using the official channels or the
0: bureaucratic channels to demand to claim for our rights. In recent months, Patricia, you have started researching the impact of COVID nineteen on refugees' lives in Brazil. What did you learn from? studying the relationship between the COVID-19 pandemic and the lived experiences of refugees in Brazil and perhaps in Latin America more generally? Um, So my
1: research on COVID-19 and refugees in Brazil, I, I conducted the interviews with refugees during the outbreak of the pandemic, so the first weeks of the pandemic in Brazil. And in fact, refugees and other migrants were, they were left behind. So they were facing... In general, three different types of challenges, the same challenges of Brazilian, according to their access to social protection connected to work or their their economic level before the pandemic. Also, the closure of schools, impact, especially Brazilian and refugee women, the same. But refugees, they were facing two different types of challenges that Brazilians were not facing. So the first one, challenges that were aggravated by the pandemic. So the lack of information, the lack of uh, social network. the fear of facing discrimination, racism, and xenophobia when accessing health care services, the fear of not being being able to access the social benefits that the federal government was connecting because they were not sure their document could be used in the app to register. So all these challenges, they were aggravated. And they were facing some new challenges that were created uh, because of the closure of the borders and uh, they were not sure for example if their family members who already got some family unification visa could enter in Brazil all the migration process they were stopped so naturalization appointments that refugees had um, asylum seekers who just arrived in Brazil and were waiting for their asylum uh, decisions. This took longer, visas were not being granted at all, and the refugees were really worried with their families left behind because they were leaving the pandemic twice in Brazil, but also they were coming from countries facing armed conflicts or humanitarian situations, so countries less equipped to fight the pandemic than Brazil. So they were really worried about their families living there.
0: Since your study adopted a more intersectional lens uh, to understanding the to understand the phenomenon of 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 this. COVID pandemic and how it impacted the lives of refugees, how do you analyze the impact of the pandemic on the different refugee communities? Are there differences in terms of the challenges that these communities are facing? Uh, Perhaps you could share with us whether these challenges are affecting some communities more than others for example?
1: Yes, I would say that the most affected community was the Venezuelans, because Venezuelans, they don't need a visa to enter in Brazil, but now the border continues to be closed to Brazil. So family members, they are separated by the border and people in need of international protection in Venezuela that wanted to come to Brazil and apply for asylum, they cannot do it, which violates international asylum law and even the Brazilian asylum law. So the the border is closed, and Venezuelans are the main target of this closure of borders in Brazil. They continue to be so. They they have been really affected by that. I would say that Syrians there are, there is a large part of Syrians that that have their own businesses producing food, and catering events. So in that in that sense, this community was particularly affected by this type of events in general. So weddings, fairs, they would uh, cater. I think. They were disproportionately affected because this community has more people working in this area, but also other refugees from other
0: nationalities that had food business were they were also affected. As we are drawing to a close and going back to the topic of family reunification, which it is the the previous work you've been focusing on in a Brazilian context, it would be interesting, Patricia, to learn about the parallels and differences of studying the implications of family reunification policies in both Brazil and the UK, where you are now based. And how does this matter for what we know about family reunification policies? Well, uh, I think we, we really need to, to consider the future of family unification policies for refugees
1: with the pandemic. So families are separated across borders, even European families, and it's really important that states don't use the pandemic to closure this border or to make family unification procedures hard for families, and this is happening both in Brazil and Europe. But I think uh, these two regions can learn from each other. So, for example, Europe could learn from Brazil with the broad definition of family. International organizations have been defending that, have been uh, explaining the importance of extended family for care uh, services and also for emotional support, So, and also um, more easy. Easy process that they do not have DNA tests or minimum income requirements or minimum or maximum waiting times uh, so Europe could learn that from Brazil but at the same time Brazil could learn from Europe to have more due process in the family unification so having uh, a clear deadline having clear revision procedures having uh, more uh, support for refugees during the entire procedure, informing refugees, being more transparent so refugees can, can apply for revisions, can apply for uh, legal organizations to support them. So I think the, those regions could really learn from each other and to improve the access of family unification to refugees and to guarantee the
0: right to family to all human beings. Thank you very much, Patricia, for joining us in the second season of The Migration Podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you,
1: Emiskri, Amanda, Fiona, for inviting me.
0: Patricia Marticelli is Research Fellow in Conflict and Migration at the Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction at the University of London. Amanda Allen is is Assistant Professor at the Department of Media and Communication at the Erasmus University of Rotterdam.